All right, folks, we've got an article as read by the author, Fast versus Slow Content, How We Can Be Truly Productive. And I don't know why I use that voice, just thought it'd be funny. I'm sorry, internet, I apologize, but Fast versus Slow Content, How We Can Be Truly Productive, a new piece read in this extremely great fashion of me just reading it off of a computer. Here we go. Do you remember when the word prolific used to mean something? When Emily Dickinson died, her family discovered roughly 1,800 poems of hers tucked away. Now, had they, made, had they not made that find, we might never have known the scope of Emily's talent. Side note, these booklets of poems were called fascicles, a few sheets of paper sewn loosely together, and now, if nothing else, you've learned the word fascicle, so I'd consider this piece to be a raging success. Tall Tales verse Data one of the major reckonings of our time will be what I call the Great Reconciliation, reconciling what happened in the before times with what's happening in the now times. Some generations have grown up in the post-internet now times. Some generations, like mine, have grown up before and after, kind of straddling it. Others of us grew up before the switch to the internet entirely, with decades of our lives before the internet or social media ever came to be. Kids growing up today won't have experienced a common phenomenon of prior generations, a good friend lying their ass off about a fact that is provably false or something that they supposedly accomplished. At the schoolyard, we'd routinely hear and tell these kinds of lies about things that we never did. I'm pretty sure that I convinced people that I hacked the mainframe of my elementary school after watching the movie Hackers for the first time. And no, I didn't even have an internet-enabled computer then. But with the ubiquity of cameras, phones, and the internet, now it's much easier to call out these kinds of harmless lies. If someone says, did you know that iguanas will turn red if you give them red food coloring, now you can just whip out your phone and you can have the true answer within seconds. Before, the best you could do would be to ask your dad or look through the Encyclopedia Britannica and pray that there was just a sentence or two about iguanas. So we're left with these tall tales of the past. Why, young Tom Morris scored a three on a 578-yard par five or par six in 1870. Now, we can't look that up other than to see that Wikipedia says that it's true, but we must reconcile our brains that were shaped before the internet with our brains that have been shaped since. Now, it's a terrible job for even a seasoned accountant, but I've been told that this kind of reconciliation is worth the trouble. So what does this have to do with the word prolific, with superlatives, with adjectives in general? Well, we've got to rethink these, apparently. Words like prolific have very different meanings, in my opinion, pre- and post-social media. Growing up learning about authors of the past, Emily Dickinson's number of 1,800 poems seemed to me to be a staggering amount. But what if we consider each tweet that you and I write to be a poem? If we consider each TikTok video that we make to be a poem, each YouTube to be a fascicle? What then? Suddenly it becomes apparent that our definition of prolific has changed a great deal. Napoleon Hill apparently toured the world writing one book, Think and Grow Rich. One book, not 650,000 pieces of supplemental content and articles to promote that book. Rich from one piece of writing. Now, what a concept is that? We're all familiar with the content treadmill. Now, even the most average among us probably puts out 1,800 unique pieces of content in a calendar year with many social media personalities putting out far more than that. So is Emily Dickinson still prolific? Or have our standards changed so much that we can no longer say that that's the case? How do the heroes of yesteryear stack up with today's run-of-the-mill content creator? Consider that it's normal these days for a moderately successful author or social media star to put out this content. 
one to two TikTok videos per day, one podcast per week or more, one Instagram post per day, one to two YouTube videos per week, one blog article per month or per week, one to two newsletters or emails per month, one post on LinkedIn per day, one tweet per day. Off the top of my head, I can think of numerous examples of people following this content treadmill strategy right now to the letter, and I can also think of many examples of people putting out much more content than this. It's easy to see how we're putting out hundreds of original thoughts into the universe per month these days, and that's still not enough to stand out. It's no secret, Facebook, Instagram, and general social media organic reach does nothing but decline each year. For you, this means that each thing you make reaches fewer and fewer of your followers. That means that your chances of anything you make going viral are mathematically shrinking with each passing year. So as ambitious people, we're left with two choices here. Quit these platforms, and I'm certainly not going to tell you that that's a bad idea, or double down. And the latter means creating more shit. So we're in a cycle of constantly creating more and more content to approximate the highs we received from our efforts just a few short years ago. I remember first learning that Facebook was declining in organic reach rapidly around 2014, and at that time it caused outrage in the marketing community. Now, it's just the new normal. If you open TikTok right now, today, you'll be confronted with marketers telling you to post in excess of three videos on the platform per day, seven days a week to break through. Now, it's nearly impossible to imagine that number going down in the next five to 10 years. So what will the future normal be in terms of content creation 10 years from now? 10 TikTok videos per day? 20? And with only 24 hours still in our day? <sighs> Sheesh. But is our content poetry? Are our pieces of content works of art? If not, what are they? Is there a chance of anyone discovering our body of work or our content during our lifetime or after we die? Will someone, after your death, discover that you were actually creating beautiful poetry on your Instagram page unnoticed 15 years prior? Currently, social media doesn't really facilitate this in any meaningful capacity. These platforms we have, they're currently designed to make our content obsolete mere minutes after it's posted. The current SOP for social media platforms is, broadly speaking, Immediately show your content to a handful, a tiny handful of your followers, and if they don't instantly hit the like button, watch the whole thing, and comment, well, they won't show it to anyone else. End of story. Which means that the window in which a piece of content can even theoretically reach an audience is very, very narrow. Now, there's no good way to catalog all of the thoughts that we have, and if we're being honest, much of what we're making is decidedly not something that's worth looking back on 15 years from now. So while they are works of art in a sense, we don't treat social media content like works of art, and there's strong downward pressure from the platforms themselves to cheapen what we make while simultaneously raising the bar for quality. As Snapchat showed us, some of these platforms are ephemeral by their very nature. In a sense, the only, real allowing, the only platform really allowing the possibility of meaningful cataloging of our work right now is Google, and that's because Google's search engine functionality extends to their other main platform, YouTube, so purchasing Google's AI tools, it's possible to let people search our historical work. And you can see search.garyvaynerchuk.com as an example of this in action. Now, anyone with a YouTube channel can implement something similar if they pay Google for their AI or cloud services. But there's no good way to search, organize, or even find our historical content on platforms like TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, etc. So in a very real sense, the staying power of content favors YouTube videos, blog articles, which are themselves indexed by Google and by our own websites, and other Google-based properties over social media companies. 
And it's for this reason that many of the world's top SEO gurus, search engine optimization experts, don't even bother with maintaining a social media account at all because it's simply deemed too much work for too little and too transient of a reward. We spend our lives feeding the beast of these social media platforms in the way a heroin addict spends their life feeding the beast of an addiction. There's simply no such thing as enough. That's why many of the people in Camp Google ignore social media as a waste of time, and many of the people in Camp TikTok don't know anything about SEO, and they certainly don't write articles or books or create extended pieces of content generally. So we're very clearly faced with a question here. How much time should we devote to fast content and how much to slow? Imagine, if you will, what if Da Vinci felt that he had to tweet a sketch every day like NFT darling Beeple did? Would he have created the Mona Lisa? Would he have had time to dissect human bodies to understand anatomy? Seems a bit heavy-handed, but you see where I'm going with this. What if Frank Lloyd Wright had to put out one to two TikTok videos per day, a podcast per week, an Instagram post per day, one to two YouTube videos per week, a blog article per month, one to two newsletters or emails per month, a post on LinkedIn per day, a tweet per day, or more? Would he still have produced as many stunning buildings? The answer from all of our gurus these days, and many of the most outspoken of whom are investors in the social media platforms that they're on, seems to be just work harder, hustle more, put out more content, put out more content. Very few are acknowledging the real consequences that putting out this much content is having in terms of leaving us time to do anything else. So we've gotta get smarter about fast content if we want to join the treadmill. One obvious thing that we can do to keep up with the demand is to build teams that help us put out more fast content. In fact, this is one of the services that my marketing agency offers. Putting out 50 pieces of content daily is certainly much easier with the team behind you because here's what a team can do. They can film you, they can capture your audio, they can edit your video and your audio for you, they can create graphics for you either for short posts or for a video, they can create an overarching strategy, they can ghostwrite blog articles, they can do all of the technical things, they can format, format, all of the various different widescreen, vertical, how vertical, square posts that we need, etc. So yes, there are ways that we can more efficiently feed this beast, but these ways cost money or time. People and companies who are serious about expanding their digital brands these days can spend upwards of twenty-five dollars to $50,000 USD per month to do it all because again, the amount of output required to even compete in the digital world is absurd. But before we go too far down the wrong track, so you think that that's what this video is about, because it's not, we need to take a step back. One of the big reasons that I created my podcast when there are 10 billion others out there is to provide a step back both for myself and for my listeners or for my viewers. Because now, as the treadmill keeps speeding up beneath our feet, we need to ask ourselves more than ever, why are we doing this? What's the desired outcome here? If everything goes right, we earn an audience, but that audience doesn't mean anything in and of itself. In fact, all the energy we're using to create digital things is more than we ever acknowledge in our society because social content and digital media requires tons of energy to simply use. We just don't see it from the shiny TikTok interface. We don't see the acres and acres of server farms running 24 seven burning fossil fuels to make it all possible. If you look at the chart of Facebook's energy consumption in gigawatt hours, it's exponentially up. So if we flash forward five to 10 years, we will in the best case scenario have built a following. So our reward for all of our troubles is finally the ears and eyeballs of other people. Yes, now what? Time to dance to the latest meaningless trend for 15 seconds? Is that what we want to achieve with all of the attention we've received? The right to have a video sponsored by Takis? And this is one question we're simply not asking enough, in my opinion, 
to what end? That's why I feature the kind of people that I do on my podcast. There aren't people who are just rich, even though many of them are millionaires. Rather, they're all people whose life and existence sheds light on a deeper, deeper truth. They found meaning beyond simply getting rich and famous. Whether it's tackling the climate crisis head on or bringing education to those who need it most, I feature people who have built their lives around a bigger picture. The sweet spot here is personal happiness combined with a larger goal. And yes, personal happiness often involves a certain degree of money. Now, if you're familiar with Plato's allegory of the cave, he speaks of an underground prison in which people are forced to essentially watch movies all day without ever seeing the real world outside of their cave slash prison. They assess their rank amongst each other based on how well they can predict the movies in front of them or talk about the movies on the screen in front of them. It sounds a lot like Monday Night Football to me. In his time, they were shadow puppets lit by flames on a cave wall, but it was watching content that he predicted instead of looking outside of the cave at the real world, whatever that is. In short, Plato predicted a world in which, if we're not careful, the content becomes our real world. Clearly, he really wasn't far off. I would argue that that's what we're in right now. We're so focused on social media success, celebrity, and fame that we've lost sight of what, if anything, the real world means to us. One of my clients teaches underprivileged kids entrepreneurship in public schools. It's an incredibly noble mission that I'm very honored to be a part of. Now, do you know what teachers say that most of their students these days want to be when they grow up? Influencers. So what is slow content then after all this? We've come full circle finally. Slow content is a reminder of those things that Plato's cave can't do for us. Content can't plant a tree. It can't invent new products to meet our energy demands. It can't make our air more breathable or our forests less prone to fire. Content can never make the leap into the real world unless we make a conscious choice for that to be the case. So while our behavior is more and more dictated by the algorithms that demand that we post no satire, no swear words, no criticism of the platforms themselves, just happy smiley dance routines, look at my family playing games, we have to take the step in our own lives to leave that social media cave and to ask ourselves, what is the broader difference we want to make in the actual world? And we need to remember to balance out our fast content with even more slow content. And slow content could be inventions that solve a real problem, books that go deeper than tweets, courses that cover more depth, companies or nonprofit organizations, art like symphonies, movies, you name it, and anything that has a greater mission behind it. These and more spit in the face of fast content because they take a long time to create. We can tweet in 30 seconds, but a 60,000 word book requires more of us. The sad truth is, on our deathbed, no one is likely to care about any of the content we've ever made, even as though we're spending more and more of our lives making it. But what might they care about? And how can we make sure that we focus on that too?